welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you, D.W. This is Joanne, um, and I was graced by being able to speak with you last week, and I, I and signed up for this week and next week. And the way I thought that I would do this... I, I, because I'm 77, it's it's fortunate and unfortunate at the same time. The longer you live, the more story you've got. So I'm going to try to compress it a little bit. Um, but I last week I talked uh, basically about about the first 20 years of my life, and it it was was primarily a life of. Um, abuse from about the age of five on, uh, emotional, mental, physical. And at 12, it was became sexual, and that I didn't really see it as abuse because at that point in my life, I was suicidal, and I wanted to die, and the sexual activity, some in some twisted way, gave me a sense of power and control where I had none, and it gave me hope that I could live long enough to get away from my home and um, get out in the world and have life. It worked uh, for a while. Um, As I said last week, um, I I sprung with my house at the age of 19 with absolutely no limits. Um, Everything was, um, it didn't matter whether it was alcohol, food, sex, uh, how I treated other people, there were no limits on my behavior. And so I decided um, to leave and go to uh, Arizona with a high school girlfriend of mine who was moving out there uh, for her. Her um, uh, father had moved out there. And I ended up um, marrying her father uh, after he got a rather nasty divorce. Uh, And we were married for nine years. And the, the sexual acting out that had been doing since the age of 12, it somehow stopped at that point. And I don't mean that, that we didn't have a very active sex life, but what I meant was there was, there's, there was no compulsion to go anywhere else. We were fairly happy the first seven years of that marriage. Um, I was still a practicing Christian. Um, I wanted to be faithful in my marriage. I was, as far as I know, he was. Um, he had... Um, some mental health issues. And I had grown up with a father who abused alcohol, although I didn't live with him after the age of five. Um, I lived with a grandmother who had severe mental health issues. And it's sort of like you grow up with alcoholism, you're drawn to an alcoholic. And you grow up with someone who's perhaps mentally ill, that's where you're drawn. It's familiar. It's not comfortable. But it's familiar, and there's a sense that somehow you can fix it or you can manage it, and that turned out not to be true. Uh, my husband became um, extremely jealous around the seventh year of our marriage, and I, in retrospect, I think it was because of a physical condition that he may have had, 
or it may have been he was 23 years older than I was, and that may have begun to prey on him, and he may have been uh, projecting a lot of his past behavior in his previous uh, three marriages onto me. I don't, I don't know what happened. All I know is it became unbearable. Um, we had a child, and um, as when the child became two, the insults and the, the name-calling and the accusations became so severe and it, it occurred to me that I did not want my child to grow up hearing that his mother was a whore or that his mother was a slut because there was no foundation in it. At, at, at I was living a, a, as a, a loyal um, uh, wife and faithful wife and there, there was absolutely no sense in the accusations. So I decided to leave him and I left him once and he came back and, and uh, admitted that he had a mental health problem uh, and went to a psychiatrist and we had a joint session about three or four months into that and the psychiatrist looked at me and said, uh, Mrs. B, you need to save yourself. There's no hope here. And I was a little astonished by that because I thought somehow you could fix everything, but I took his advice and I got out and I got my child out. Um, shortly after that, I met someone that I was working with who was a married man, um, and the sexual urge and the, 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 the need to use sex at that point more as an aesthetic for the pain I was feeling, uh, maybe even more than the, than the power and the control, um, got to me, and I went into an affair with this man. Um, he left his wife. And we got married and moved to um, Dallas, Texas. And I had found a soulmate. Now, quite truthfully, after 30 years in Al-Anon and, and 22 years in, in, actually 25 years in SA, um, looking back, you know, if I had been then who I was now, which is the old story, we are who we are when we are, and we do what we do. And you, it, it's sort of a waste of time and energy to try to figure out what it would be like now being who I am. But there was there was a great deal of love, um, certainly a lot of passion in that relationship. We were soulmates in, in so many ways. Um, he developed lung cancer about uh, four years into that relationship. Uh, we had also had a child. He was, he was three years old at the time that his father died. And um, my husband was uh, diagnosed terminal on our son's third birthday, and he died four months later on my mother's birthday. Uh, and I was once again set adrift um, out into that sea of no limits on anything. Now, our, this marriage was very different in that um, we had both come out of, of very bad divorces. We um, wrote our own marriage contract within the vows themselves, and and we both, as it turned out, had been molested as children, and we were both sex addicts. Um, and so we were swingers. Uh, we went to a lot of the sex parties. Um, we we kept that side of our life out of our home because of the children, but we were very active in the party scene in Dallas, and there was a very active party scene at that point in time. Um, it was before HIV, and, and there there it was there was not the fear that there is now. 
Um, but when he died, um, I just, again, went wild. It was, it was anything I could find, anywhere I could find it, with the exception that I had two children, and I was not going to be bringing men in and out of my home. And that those two children, I think, saved my life because I'm not sure I would have even wanted to live if it hadn't been for them. But I conducted my, my, my sexual activities around um, long lunch hours and clandestine little meetings out uh, away from the house, but I didn't stop them. And at that point in time, I, I also... Um, I had always been a social drinker. I, I drank a lot when I first got away from home, but I'd always been a social drinker. And I got into uh, drinking a lot with with my second husband because at the end we owned a bar. And it was easy access, and I, it was just something I did. And he had come from an alcoholic family. He was a, a highly functional person with alcohol, whether he was physically addicted or not, I don't know, but I know that we, we did a lot of drinking. When he died, I couldn't afford to drink anymore. So the only time I drank was if I went to a party or I was out and somebody was dying. And um, I didn't think that was a problem because I didn't go out that often in those kinds of settings. And I, um, I came to the realization one night that I had gone to a party, I'd been drinking basically, not intentionally to get drunk, but like there was no no limit. And uh, I remember my friend um, was at a friend's house, and my friend had walked me down to the parking lot. I remember saying goodbye. I remember getting in the car. I woke up the next morning at home. I couldn't tell you how I got home. I couldn't tell you if I'd stopped in between. And my oldest son, who was about 10 or 11 at the time, came in and said, Mom, um, uh, Mr. Gardner called back last night and said he forgot to tell you something. I want you to call him. And I said, I didn't finish the garden last night. And my son looked at me and said, you were on the phone with him for an hour, Mom. And I suddenly realized that I had blacked out. And again, my children saved me because it was like, you know, one child has a father in Indiana that I don't particularly want him to have to, to grow up with him. And the other child, if anything happens to me, because I get drunk and, and have a head on into somebody or if I die of, of physical illness because of this, it's going to be an awful orphan. And he's going to be growing up with aging grandparents or he's going to be in a foster home. It has to stop. And I did. Now, I still occasionally have a drink, but that, at that, that night, that day, when I woke up and realized I had blacked out, my limit at parties was two drinks. Within a year, it was one, and at this point, I'm liable to order a drink. Um, I don't still like margarita with my Mexican food. I'm liable to order a drink and drink a third of it, and it, the rest of it goes back to the kitchen and gets thrown out. It's just the obsession went away. I have, I have no idea except by the grace of God, but the obsession, whatever it was, went away. Unfortunately, I wasn't praying for the obsession to go away with, with sex. It was still my, like I said, it was still my sense of power and control. It was still um, part of that syndrome I came out of as a, being a victim in childhood and thinking I had the illusion, or I had the illusion of power with the self-perception that I was a victim. I'd been done wrong. The world owed me something. And the truth is, the world owes me nothing. 
um, my story isn't, isn't nearly as severe as a lot of stories that I've heard. And we all have whatever we have to get through. And it's our job to do it. It's, my thing was to fix other people. It was easier to fix other people. It was easier to tell them how to live than to look at how I was living and change my, you know, change my behavior. Anyway, um, after Richard died, um, as I said, I, I went out uh, a lot uh, in very odd times and places to keep my, my sex life hidden from my children. Um, didn't date a whole lot because I really was not looking for a relationship and didn't didn't know what a real relationship looked like. I only found that after I got to program and actually found that in Al-Anon and then later in, in, in uh, uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, had no idea that you, you, you didn't start a relationship in bed. You didn't fall in bed and then try to figure out, well, okay, the sex is good. Now I can make something else out of this, maybe. The thing is, um, as I said last week, you know, you start with step four, you you look at your motives for your sexual behavior. You look at the at, at the things you do. And what I had found was that my motives for sexual behavior were power and control because I could tell a man what to do. I could manipulate his behavior. I could get what I wanted, uh, whatever that was. And it, 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 it was never things like money or prestige. It, it was it was other types of things. Um, and I always looked for someone beneath me. And what program has taught me is nobody's beneath me and nobody's above me. You know, I'm a very visual person. And I look at um, the world in terms of each, each beautiful soul as a little twinkling Christmas light. And we span the globe again and again and again. And there's a brighter light above us, and that's my higher power. But in God's eyes, we are all loved unconditionally. And that's my strength. In days when there are problems, in days when I'm in pain, um, in days when I'm terribly lonely, that's my strength. We are all brothers and sisters under one higher power, and that's what keeps me going. Um, after uh, Richard died, um, and I was, I was feeling so empty that I really didn't want... Um, a relationship. I wanted sex, but I didn't want a relationship. I just, I couldn't imagine um, being in love with anybody else except my husband. He was, of course, gone. So the kids grew up, the kids left home, and other things um, began to replace, uh, I guess one would say, esteem in my life. Um, I went back to school and got my social work degree. Um, I went um, uh, into program in, in um, 1987 when my youngest son, who was 15 at the time, was using drugs and alcohol. He later graduated to heroin. So uh, I have 30 years now, and 10 of them around his alcohol and drug, and then, and then um, uh, looking at him trying to destroy himself with heroin. And uh, as I said last week, about six months ago, he went to methadone treatment and is trying to rebuild his life, and for that I am extremely grateful. Uh, the thing I learned out of that experience um, with him 
and, and I learned it in all to apply it to all of my relationships. But the thing I learned out of that relationship with him is that he has a right to make his own choices. First of all, I know I have no power over his choices. Um, my literature in Al-Anon says that, that step one is burnt into us, that it becomes part of our cellular structure, that we automatically know when something comes up and we're feeling frustrated and angry because we're powerless over someone else or some other situation, that we have no power. And we have to look at the reason why it's upsetting us that we have no power. And for me, when I'm powerless and, I'm, I'm, and that's bothering me, it's because I'm scared of something. I'm scared I'm going to lose what I've got, which was very true in the case of my son. I thought he was going to die before he ever got out of this addiction process. Or I'm not getting what I want when I want it. And in most cases for me, I'm not getting what I want when I want it. I want whatever, and I want it now. I am not willing to wait on God's time. And that's, you know, I learned all my old behaviors and lived with them for 47 years. They don't go away. They recede. And my job is to work my program every day with vigilance so that they don't come back to the forefront. My character defects and my obsessions I have often liked it. I, when, I, when I was a social worker, I, I did some of my time uh, working with chemically dependent people. But I spent most of it working with people with HIV and AIDS. Um, I had a lot of, of gay friends. I lost a lot of gay friends. And it was, it was a job that you did not for money but for love because, believe me, it didn't pay very well. But, but what, it, what it gave me was the ability to be of service to a community that I loved. Um, and when new, the new medicines came out, there were some that were so strict that you had to take them exactly at the same time every day, and there were lots of requirements about when you ate and when you didn't. But if you gave that virus any leeway in taking of that medicine, it came back and, and transformed into just a, a little bit different type of virus, and the medicine was no longer effective. And I'm that way with my character defects. You know, if I'm not working my program every single day, if I'm not down on my knees, if I'm not meditating, if I'm not reading, if I'm not doing service work, then those character defects begin to creep back in. And before I know it, I hear myself saying something that's cruel, unkind. I hear myself thinking judgmentally. Um, I, all, all the old behaviors that I came in with begin to... to crop back up and take me out of my peace and serenity. So that's why after 30 years, I'm still in Al-Anon. That's why I'm still in SA. That's why I'm still working on me um, and will be until the day I die. Um, the, the, one of the, and, and this is a, a little bit of my story, but it, it, I am so... Uh, scared of becoming complacent in my program. And, and one of the things that, that absolutely I keep as a hallmark in my mind uh, to remember that I have to be uh, always alert about, about the choices that I make um, was I used to drive a 74 Volkswagen. Uh, and I'm going to wrap up with this for today. And, and next week is, is more about the big book 
and the AA 12 and 12 and, and the literature and the experiences that I have had that will um, maybe help somebody else. But this one is, um, is sort of funny. I used to drive a study for a Volkswagen. And my sponsor kept saying, why are you driving that old car? You're spending more money on it than, you know, than you could go buy a new car. You could lease a car. You could, oh, I don't want to be in debt. And this one's paid for and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I argued with her for six months. And she was getting a little irate with me because it was, I mean, it, it was true. I was spending more money on rental cars when the car was in the garage and more money on car repairs. And I, by the time I got through, I could have paid cash for a new car when I put in that Volkswagen. But I'm leaving a meeting, uh, an Al-Anon meeting on Saturday morning. I'm driving down the street and people are looking at me sort of funny. And I pull into 7-Eleven and I get out and the Volkswagen's on fire. The engine's on fire in the back. And uh, I'm... I'm sort of looking up, like, are you trying to tell me something? Do I need to get rid of this car? And as it turned out, um, somebody put the fire out, the tow truck came, et cetera. You know, and, and I finally got, okay, I'm, I give up. I'm going to go buy a new car. So I did. I had some help and emotional support doing that, but I did. And I'm thinking in my mind for a couple of weeks, why did I do this? This is stupid. Why did I not get rid of that car? And it finally hit me. It wasn't about the car. You know, when you're driving a Volkswagen in Dallas, Texas in the summertime with long dangly earrings and there's no air conditioning in the car, it, they, they burn the uh, neck or wherever they're touching your face. And it's just very, very uncomfortable, um, the, whole, the whole experience. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, of course, you're back in self-pity. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you if you're driving a brand new PT Cruiser. There's no reason to feel sorry for you. But if you're driving a 74 Volkswagen and your earrings are, they're either going to think you're awfully stupid or they're going to feel sorry for you. Why do you need somebody else's self-pity? Why do you need self-pity? Well, the answer was I didn't. I just gotten complacent in my program and hadn't been checking my character defect list and hadn't been concentrating on love yourself enough to be good to yourself. There's no reason to follow in that. It's gone. It's passed. You've gotten rid of it. And that, that marker, I have a little orange Volkswagen sitting up on the top of my bookcase, and I look at it every day, and it's, it, what it says to me is, no more Volkswagens, no more self-pity. Um, anyway, that, that's... That's, those are the kind of markers I put out there for myself. And I think I've talked 20 minutes, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, give the, the meeting back to Moses and, and uh, finish up next week. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.